Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Buprenorphine is an amazing drug. It is incredibly safe and effective as both an analgesic as well as a frontline therapy for the treatment of an opioid use disorder. However, despite these attributes, decisions around the management of this drug in the perioperative period have generated, this is my personal experience, substantial confusion and anxiety amongst both patients, policymakers, and healthcare providers. Should the drug be stopped? Should the drug be weaned? When should it be restarted? Or even more provocatively, should it be initiated for the first time in the postoperative period? Well, the good news, we now have some clarity in many of these questions, and anesthesiologists, members of ASRA, and Rapham authors are leading the way. For this podcast, we will be using the names buprenorphine and suboxone interchangeably. Suboxone is a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, with the naloxone only being active if injected. Thus, it is an abuse deterrent in the treatment of OUD. Today, we are joined by Dr. Lynn Cohan. Dr. Cohan is an Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine at the University of Virginia Pain Management Center. She did her anesthesiology residency at Georgetown University and her pain fellowship at UVA. She has served as the Chronic Pain Fellowship Director for the past several years and was recently appointed Division Chief of Pain Medicine. She is actively involved with Azra Pain Medicine, serving as the Chair of the Membership Committee In addition, she holds leadership positions in the area of education, serving as the president-elect of the Association of Pain Program Directors, council member of SAAPM, and the chair of the fellowship committee at AAPM. Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to be here to talk about this topic. And I know it's of great interest to people, and it's something that our group is very passionate about. Great. Um, Last year, Dr. Cohan was the senior author in a multi-center and multidisciplinary project establishing expert recommendations for the perioperative management of patients with OUD. For the sake of this podcast, we're going to, to focus mainly on the buprenorphine recommendations. In your manuscript, you provide guidance on what to do with patients presenting for surgery who are already on buprenorphine. Secondly, you introduce a decision aid to actually initiate the drug in patients with OUD who are not on medication-assisted therapy. This second topic, in my opinion, is an absolutely trailblazing idea and is an extremely exciting role for the physician anesthesiologist. So with that, let's jump in. To start things off, Lynn, can you tell us a little bit about the background story of buprenorphine in the context of the perioperative period? I alluded to this a little bit in my opening statement, But why do you think there has been so much confusion around what to do with this drug? Let's just focus for now on patients scheduled for elective surgery who are already on buprenorphine for OUD therapy. I think, you know, the confusion is challenging. I think most of it probably stems from the misunderstanding of the basic pharmacology of the drug itself. You know, it's labeled 
um, buprenorphine is labeled as a partial mu agonist and is frequently, you know, thought that this translates probably to partial or low clinical efficacy. But that's the part where I think there's the greatest misunderstanding is that that's not true. You know, buprenorphine was actually formulated initially as an analgesic as opposed to a medicine to treat OUD. So it's a very potent and effective analgesic. But I think that the fact that there's that partial agonist that people have that misconception that perhaps it can't adequately or effectively treat pain. I think that's a great. I think that's a great point. I sort of cut you off, Lynn. Uh, but but you're you're, abs- you're absolutely right. And I I, I I came across multiple situations where uh, both physicians and nurses thought that it was a blocking drug, and that it was kind of like Narcan. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and I, 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 I was shocked, but, but, but I think you, you know, that may be a common mis, misperception that, that, that actually represents somewhat of a barrier. What do you, you, you think that, uh, you think it's common? Yeah, I definitely think it's common. I mean, I agree. I think people mis, you know, confuse it as a blocking agent. And then they just think that there's a ceiling effect on the analgesia. It does, you know, have ceiling effects for respiratory depression and actually has a better side effect profile than full mu agonist. And I think that gets confused as well for its analgesic efficacy. I think most people don't even realize that it's actually, you know, more potent than morphine. And so it can be very effective um, to treat pain. That's a really good point about the comparison to morphine. I have actually seen multiple head-to-head comparisons in terms of it, in terms of its analgesic efficacy with respect to morphine, and that's a that's an important, I think, fact that's going to come out as we discuss some of the other applications of of buprenorphine in this podcast. But I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I agree. And you know, interestingly, it's being used you know more and more off label for chronic pain. You know, unfortunately, there, there are some barriers you know with insurance, but. You know, given that it's such an effective analgesia and that it actually can have some protective um, benefits, it would really be more my go-to analgesic if it weren't for some of the insurance hurdles, at least in the chronic pain um, world. That's a, that's an excellent point. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't prescribe this for, for pain specifically, but the doses used often to manage chronic pain conditions are much, much smaller than, than, than addiction medicine purposes. Is that is that accurate? Correct. So the, you know, the doses that are FDA approved for pain are in microgram. And so I think sometimes people get confused, you know, what is, you know, an analgesic and what is, um, you know, the formulations that are approved for um, opioid use disorder. So microgram, you're going to think more about pain and then milligram dosing more for OUD. But that being said, I mean, some patients, you know, might need milligram dosing for pain control. And that is when the buprenorphine can potentially be used off-label. I want to make that clear for analgesic purposes. Great point. And you know, I was when I first started reviewing your uh, paper when it was submitted for consideration in, in Rapam, I immediately was like in solidarity with you regarding how complicated it must have been to work in a multidisciplinary team like this. Because I've done some quality improvement projects where just I was trying to work with a, a, a smaller group and we had a lot of conflict and, and disagreement and how do you move the ball forward when you disagree around stuff. So, so I, I read your, your paper at first pass and I was like, wow, this is absolutely an amazing accomplishment. The fact that you brought all these stakeholders in, you got uh, expert opinion, you, you synthesized uh, recommendations in a, in a very um, confusing area. So 
maybe before we get into the specifics of, of your recommendations in the paper, can you give our listeners a little insight into maybe how to organize and plan a project like yours that involves so many people, so many opinions and professional interests? I just think it must have been a logistical challenge. And I, I kind of joked in thinking about this before, like maybe even more described, better described as a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, to, in all honesty, that we were very lucky. You know, we had a great working group. We had great support from ASRA as well as the administrations um, from the other societies. And it was really, really important to us to have these differing opinions and these different societies because we really wanted to represent different opinions. That we wanted to represent, you know, the pain community, but also the general anesthesiologist. You know, we wanted input from pharmacists, but also you know, ASAM and our addiction medicine specialists, because we all do have different perspectives on this. And that's why it was really important to really work together. I mean, yes, and everyone was just so enthusiastic that I think have made it so much easier um, to kind of move forward. Uh, you know, I think some of the challenges in the beginning were just, we just wanted to tackle everything, right? We wanted to take on the perioperative period. We wanted to take on the chronic pain period. You know, we wanted to take on special patient populations like pregnancy. And so, you know, in the end, we really just kind of had to refocus and like, you know, make this readable, impactful, and kind of take it by sections, you know. And the, the hope is that our group will continue to work together on, on some of these other issues going forward, but really wanted to, you know, narrow down to the perioperative period to begin with. And that's that, that's really great insight, and I think for our, our readers, they should they should hopefully recognize that this topic is 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 one where it it, it has interest to so many different people, and it's a great opportunity for us to really have translational um, medicine involving both chronic acute uh, pain and other subspecialties where we're all working together, and that's relatively rare, I think, in medicine where we're all aligned by one one disease process and especially in a territory that's 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 relatively um not well described so so hats off to you and and i know i know we're gonna uh, come back to to the topic of 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 kind of this trailblazing idea but do you think in working with the group uh, the fact that this wasn't a practice of of many of us to think about uh was intimidating to to anyone like like you're going to make these recommendations about things that nobody really does <laughs> and you're almost going to set the bar really high right like anesthesiologists should be engaged with this stuff and you know i, I would just be like if it was if, if i was one of those members of your group i might think my gosh am i gonna am i gonna kind of rattle the cage too much here so what, what do you think about that yeah i mean i think the working group in the members of ourselves we're not too worried about that because we really strongly feel that this is such an important topic and that it was necessary to get these recommendations out there and just you know the thought that substance use disorders are so prevalent and they really touch every specialty that you know it, it doesn't really have to be considered you know trailblazing in a way we want this to be you know the mission of every medical specialty um, and that's how we want others to think, to not be afraid to take care of patients with substance use disorders, because all of us are going to encounter these patients in, in our everyday practices. So, for example, the National Academy of Medicine, you know, is strongly promoting education in substance use disorders for all clinicians. And they're even, in certain cases, uh, you know, striving towards advocating 
for this type, you know, training um, and, and some kind of, you know, understanding of treatment to, in order to be licensed. So in order to renew your license and also, you know, obviously highly advocating within medical schools for this to be a part of all medical schools. And so it's really something that we're grateful that as anesthesiologists, we have certain expertise about pharmacology and analgesia to kind of be the you know front runners on this. But I think our hope is really that other specialties follow suit. You know, it's clear that in the EM um, emergency medicine um, field that they are also leading the way on this. Um, and so, you know, we need to, need to be right up there with them because um, I think we have a unique skill set that enables us to do so. Great. And I think the, the summary uh, of your activities, I think, can be described as passion in principle. You weren't scared because you had passion in principle and you and that drove you. And that's, I think, a great lesson for a lot of our, our listeners, especially our, our young faculty and our residents. Passion and principle, you can go. You can go far, and this is a great example. Okay, so Lynn, the million dollar question is: What to do with this common scenario? A patient is scheduled for an ambulatory rotator cuff repair or some other moderately painful procedure, and is identified ahead of time as being on the typical eight milligrams BID of Suboxone for OUD over the past five years. Now, ideally, this patient gets flagged, and then an automatic institutional policy kicks in. What should that policy be? So, you know, as part of this working group, I highly recommend that that policy should be, you know, continuation of the home dose of, buprenor- of buprenorphine suboxone. You know, interestingly, at UVA, prior to writing this paper, our own institution had a different policy in which, you know, and this is where I think the biggest controversy comes in is what to do with patients. You know, do you, I think most you know, the literature now shows not to stop buprenorphine, that it's better to continue. But I think the the hardest part is deciding what to do with patients who want to, do you wean them because that's the only way to get adequate pain control or do you continue them on their home dose? And so, you know, our working group, of course, you know, talked about this. And really in the end, we really con- su- suggested that in most cases, patients can be continued on their home dose of buprenorphine. Um, particularly, you know, as in this case scenario where a patient's on APID, so that's at 16 milligrams, you know, having the addiction specialist as part of our working group, they strongly felt that most cravings in terms of withdrawal or, you know, wanting to, to misuse opioids really can be curtailed at that 16 milligram dose. Um, and so patients who are in higher levels of that are probably, you know, being used um, to treat both potentially both uh, pain as well as opioid use disorder. But if they're on higher doses, then you're using it potentially for pain. And that can be to your advantage in the post-operative period. A lot of the thought was of patients that are difficult to control where buprenorphine has might have gotten kind of a bad rap in in terms of that. Is it really the buprenorphine or is it just a patient on opioids in general? We all know that patients come in on high-dose opiates. Their pain is going to be harder to control. Um, but, you know, we can use multimodal analgesia, you know, regional techniques to help combat that. And so, you know, in the end, you know, the working group felt that it really should be the same with, with the, the Suboxone. Yeah, and I, I 100% agree with the working group. And I think it's fascinating to look at how the even maybe independent of, of your guideline statement or recommendation statement, the trend was clearly 
to continue the drug. And I, I think when, when I stand back and look at the preoperative options, there are really three scenarios, right? There's the buprenorphine gets discontinued, uh, buprenorphine gets dose reduced, um, uh, or, or buprenorphine, buprenorphine continues as is. And I think there's, um, th- those were obviously the considerations in your working group. And I think that the goal would be to minimize um, recidivism around the OUD, but at the same time, not create a situation where the the pain is is inappropriately controlled. And you've already kind of alluded to this, but but I think that's still inherent in people's concerns about the drug. That if I if I continue it, I'm going to be stuck with this really nightmare situation. And I think to your point, I'll let you I'll let you um, um, expand on this. Um, th- these are difficult patients and they're not going to be easy regardless of what you do. And I think we learned that in the complexity of trying to wean them off of it when we did do that, that they were still difficult pain candidates. And then we exposed them to risks by coming off the drug. And it was very um, complicated and, and required a lot of human resources to oversee that process, none of which we really had. So for my institution, it was a no-brainer. Uh, it, you, you continue the drug because you don't have the resources to really manage them, even if that even if there was some suggestion that was the better approach. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's so many, there's so many things that go into play here. I mean, one, you have to also think about right, the perioperative period, right? Patients are going for surgery. It's a stressful time for people, you know, and stress only, you know, can increase the risk of recurrence of obese use disorders. I mean, there's evidence to, to suggest that. There's evidence to suggest that the perioperative period for patients, you know, who get admitted um, for um, with OUD, you know, the first month after discharge is the, the, one of the largest um, time periods where people are at risk for overdose. So, you know, stopping buprenorphine or even potentially decreasing it during this time of heightened risk, you know, can be really dangerous. And I think, you know, in most cases, that probably, you know, outweighs the scenario of the worry about inadequate analgesia. Now, I think you do need to look at the scenario as a whole, right? I mean, a patient who's perhaps been in recovery for 10 years, you know, who's been stable, um, might be at risk, you know, than a patient who who is more recently in recovery or has a history of, you know, frequent recurrences of their use disorder. Um, But, you know, these are things, you know, you need to talk about. And this is why we highly advocate in the working group to also, you know, have this as a multidisciplinary team and and decision-making, you know, reach out to the buprenorphine prescriber, talk, you know, include the patient in your plan. This is not, you know, one way I'm going to decide this, and this is what it is. I mean, everyone needs to be involved to the best as possible. And that's really, if the patients know that, then I think you're going to alleviate their fears and really help them understand that you can control their pain. I think you could help the surgeons understand that you help, you know, can control their pain. But, but in, in fairness, I think a lot of health systems don't have the resources to make all those phone calls and follow up because it may be like an ambulatory surgery center somewhere where like the anesthesiologist may meet the patient for the first time on the morning of surgery and, you know, have a H&P that's printed out on a, on, on a piece of paper, not even electronic. So uh, all things being equal, 
these recommendations I think are good because it supports the health systems that may not have the ability to have kind of personalized medicine, if you will. And we talked about all that a lot in our working group as well. I mean, we definitely recognize, you know, I come from an academic institution where some of these resources are more readily available, but, you know, it's true. I mean, most health systems don't have these types of resources. And so that's why you know, we did kind of, you know, want to keep it simple and that in most cases just continue the buprenorphine. And then there's more and more studies, right, showing that, that, you know, patients who are maintained on buprenorphine or even methadone actually require less postoperative medicines than patients who were weaned or, or taken off. Well, that's a really good point. And actually, that, that I had a later question for you, but I'll just come to it now uh, since we are talking about evidence. Is there is there any suggestion that patients who are weaned off of buprenorphine for a major surgical procedure are are susceptible to recidivism? Yes. I mean, there, there, I mean, studies have shown that patients who are weaned off are potentially more likely um, to have recurrences of their opiate use disorder. I think and kind of going also back to that kind of vulnerable period of the hospitalization, it's considered to be a heightened time of risk. And so taking them off during that time has been associated with increased use of, you know, recurrence um, and potentially overdose deaths. And and don't forget the increased complexity of getting them back on because presumably you'll be on full agonist therapy because you took them off and it's a week later and like who owns that? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's hard, you know, and we still see that, right? I mean, we, I mean, you know, even just, you know, maybe two, three weeks ago, right? We, we still see a lot of patients because I think the word, you know, not everyone and the community knows, you know, that you should continue the buprenorphine and they weren't, the surgeon didn't send them to pre-op clinic and they show up, you know, and they've stopped their buprenorphine. And, and then that's the really challenging thing. What do you do? You know, I think there's two things, right? You can use our guidelines to potentially help reinitiate the buprenorphine during the, the post-operative period. Um, you know, the, the second option is if you have the time and availability to closely connect with the buprenorphine prescriber and make sure that there's very close follow-up. Great, great point. I know I know this is hard to believe, Lynn, but what would you do if a patient was never flagged and the patient shows up having done the opposite of what's in these recommendations? What would be the implications and who would then be responsible for for making decisions on the day of surgery? Like what would, what would happen in your institution? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's when we talked, you know, the surgery would go forward um, because in most cases, you know, the patients are even off their buprenorphine for some time in those situations. And then there's lots of discussions post-operatively, um, you know, with the patient um, about potentially reinstituting. You know, part of it depends on how long the patient might be in the hospital, but, you know, you can potentially reinstitute the buprenorphine while the patient is in the post-operative period, especially if they're high risk. It, but it does get a little complicated in, 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 in terms of the timing of doing that and, and what are some of the implications. But that actually leads us nicely into the next part of our discussion. And, and, and these, I think, are the most provocative part of your article. It's the recommendations of how to initiate buprenorphine in a patient who has an untreated opioid use disorder and is in the post-operative period. Now, there may be many of our listeners thinking this is a crazy concept. What business is it of an anesthesiologist to get involved with such an off-label anesthetic practice? In other words, stay in your lane. How would you respond? 
Yeah, and this kind of goes back to, you know, perhaps recircling back to some of the stuff I said earlier. I think we all have a duty to help patients um, to get better, right? And and if we're in a position to do so, not doing so, you know, I just, you know, we're in a position to do no harm. I mean, this, this is a great opportunity, especially now during COVID. I mean, I'm sure we've all heard the numbers, right? 93,000 deaths is the highest it's ever been from even, you know, from 2019 to 2020 is jumping higher than it had in the past. I mean, during this COVID epidemic, it's even more important. These patients are at risk of death. And if we're in a, you know, we really have a reachable and teachable moment to help patients to, you know, uh, into potentially a bridge to recovery. It's extremely important. This is in this like this is the this is the clinical moment, right? This is when it happens, and this is like a magical period. And I think I think you're spot on. And and I was really really disheartened to see some of those numbers that were coming out from like the CDC and various other researchers suggesting that the the lifespan of of of, of Americans is dropping. Uh, and the, there's there's actually a reversal of the of the public health triumphs. Of, of decades past with our lifespan increasing previously. And, and this is largely being attributed to, to overdose, suicide, and drug use. So, so I think this topic is incredibly important. And I also saw shocking statistics, and I can't remember the actual percentage, but if you um, get discharged from the hospital with OUD that's not treated, your risk of mortality is, 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 is off the roof and just really bad stuff happens. And it usually, usually ends up in a tragedy for, for everybody in the family as well. So, so this is just a very, very rich environment to make small, you know, evidence-based moves to, to really help people. And I think to that effect, you, you know, there are some studies that show that hospital-based initiated OUD with you know, ongoing treatment after discharge is effective in terms of, you know, increasing and sustaining um, long-term recovery and long-term treatment. So that's people who are started in the hospital. If they got started in the hospital, um, they're more likely, you know, to to remain in treatment. And we also recognize that everyone that gets started in the hospital, not all those patients are going to remain in treatment. But even if you start buprenorphine and they don't follow up with the outpatient buprenorphine prescriber, you at least gave them one more chance, right? Every chance you give them is one more chance to stay alive and to not, you know, be at risk for an opioid overuse death. And, and I do, and again, I do recognize that there's different practice models and, and, and there may be many environments where having an anesthesiologist engage in, in these these interventions may just be impossible. So, so I, I don't want to like... Uh, show how how uh, ignorant I am of all those other different practice models, uh, but 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 it, I think it's good that everybody knows this that this therapy is possible in the in the postoperative period, and it's certainly possible to get engaged with resources at your hospital that may be able to help patients who are untreated. So at the very least, this is educational, and at the very um, uh, best, it's actually operational for anesthesiologists. And and I was wondering, Lynn, if you could maybe um, just I know it's there's a it's kind of complex, but could you summarize the the general recommendations from the working group about how to initiate buprenorphine in the postoperative period? Yeah, I, I mean, I think first, don't be scared, right? And also, don't be scared in terms of knowing do they truly have an opioid disorder or do they not? You know, you can use basic screening tools to try to identify, but even if you just think they're, they might have an overuse disorder, it's okay to initiate the treatment paradigm. 
And really, it's it's quite simple. I mean, for uh, uh, IV analgesic, you know, opioids really can stop for one to three hours and then start initiating low-dose buprenorphine. Um, so, and if they're on oral, really four to six hours. So really, if they got oxycodone, instead of giving them their next dose of oxycodone, the next time it's due, that's when you can initiate the buprenorphine. You can initiate it you know, two milligrams and follow them approximately every hour until they have adequate analgesia or, you know, decreased cravings or symptoms of withdrawal. Um, you know, and you can kind of do this over a two-day period. So um, you don't want to, you know, go, go too high, but so two milligrams at a time um, is effective. And, you know, and it shouldn't precipitate acute withdrawal. And remember, the normal paradigm the for buprenorphine is to make sure I would say, I guess, not normal. The, the previous thinking was patients had to be in withdrawal prior to initiating. And so, you know, starting at two milligram doses, um, you're not really going to precipitate withdrawal acutely. Remember, it's not naloxone. It's a partial agonist. So you're only going to, you know, incrementally be increasing the opioid, you know, analgesia um, while decreasing cravings without, without putting them into forward withdrawal. And I, I and I think that, that that's a great point. And 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 and, and you and you and you and I went back and forth a little bit when you were submitting the manuscript about different paradigms and protocols. And I think I mentioned to you we have this micro dosing initiation process, which is specifically for this population of patients who are in pain, because previously in our electronic medical record system, there's a it was a red flag that actually buprenorphine was contraindicated in the setting of acute pain, which I think, again, gets back to some of the, the, the misnomers that, that people have and the, and, the, and the lack of full education around this drug. So, so I think the micro-initiation process goes over five to six days where you slowly introduce the drug under the, the context of full agonist therapy. So it's kind of cool for some of these complex patients. We still do this, especially in, in trauma patients who are going to be in-house for a long time. But obviously, if, if you're looking for more of a rapid ability to discharge a patient, six days is going to be impractical. And uh, so we've used your recommendations, and they've worked really, really well. And in fact, we actually um, sometimes have to change the PRN order for why you give additional dose. And it may just be because of either pain, withdrawal symptoms, or the patient just wants it. Because you know you're going to end up at about eight milligrams BID, right? That's probably where you're going to end up. And remember, you can use other, you know, multimodal analgesics during this time. You you can still use, you know, um, adjuvants to help um, patients get through the period, but they're really not going to be any worse than if you were making them go into withdrawal to initiate the drug to begin with. And just like you said, the microdosing, I mean, more and more is coming out about microdosing. You do need that longer period of time. You know, the two milligrams, that is a formulation. And so it's you know, perhaps easier for the pharmacy and the nurses. It might cause less anxiety about how to um, dispense the medication to patients and, and can be done quick, you know, quicker. Right. Now, these are all, all great points. Do you have any other kind of clinical pearls that you've learned um, through, the, through, the, through your experience that you think would be helpful for, for, uh, for people to know, but I, I'll just mention the, 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 the adjuncts. So we almost always run ketamine infusions when we're coming off full agonist therapy for, uh, this purpose. We just cover our bases there. We use a ton of regional, um, but, uh, but, but, 
but but I think you're right. I mean, you, you're you're we're comprehensively addressing both the acute pain needs and the uh, addiction addiction medicine needs. Exactly, exactly. And don't be afraid, you know, and, and so talk to patients, you know, and even if patients aren't ready and they refuse, you know, at least they've, it's one chance they've heard the story, right? They've, they've heard it and you can go back the next day and talk to them again, you know, and you'll find, you know, that patients might be re- more receptive than you think. Well, those are, those are all awesome uh, points. And I think the last area I wanted to cover um, is this topic of, of in a health system, who is responsible for some of these big policy changes that cross disciplines. And I noticed at my own institution when uh, buprenorphine use increased and we had a lot of patients coming in preoperatively that um, people were pointing fingers a little bit, you know, like, wow, there's no, there's no policy and why didn't the surgeons do this? The surgeons say, isn't this chronic pain? And and anesthesia says, in chronic pain says, you know, I'm not managing these patients. It's the family practice doctors. And everyone's like going around in a circle and, it, and it, there's a void of leadership. And I think this is a great opportunity, especially for uh, anesthesiologists, departmental leaders, uh, acute pain services to, to step in and say, we're going to help, um, you know, clear, clear the fog here. And we're going to establish some, some standards that we can study and then it iteratively improve. And that's why I think your recommendations are so um, uh, awesome is because they empower people now to take this and say, look, I'm not rogue here. There's like other really smart people thinking about this and here's what we can do. And, uh, and, and it can really help people f- take these leadership positions and really help. I think anesthesiology, um, you know, get, I think the, the respect it deserves in terms of some of these these policy um, um, interventions. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, we, I mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but we're anesthesiologists, right? We have all this knowledge of pharmacology. Um, we need to you know there's a perfect area to put it to use and for a good cause, right? And we can lead the way in this. I mean, it's, you know, it kind of goes along with, you know, perioperative pain clinics, the perioperative surgical home. I mean, we're, they're there for the patients more than just during their operation, um, you know, and, and by being leaders on this, you know, that's how I think we can, we can, you know, really improve outcomes, you know, for all these, well, for all these patients. Okay. Well, with that, um, Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks to all of you who listened in. Thank you for listening to the Rapham Focus podcast. Original music and production are done by Dan Langa. More information can be found at www.danlanga.com. We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rapham Journal, and you can visit us at www.rapham.org.